You're listening to Electrician Live with your host, Paul Abernathy. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Electrician Live. My name is Paul Abernathy, your host, as always, and welcome to the podcast. So today's podcast, we're going to do a little bit of exam prep cleanup. Uh, Most of you probably know we had Electrician Live uh, on uh, Saturday evening, and it just was not happy with the the, the way it was streaming and the podcast, so we're going to do kind of an update, give you a synopsis of what we talked about, because our goal here is to help you prepare to pass the exam with this, uh, and obviously in the short time that we have, we couldn't cover everything, so we do want to make sure that we cover uh, the more important topics that you're going to have on an exam. Uh, so that you really are prepared for taking the exam. So as I talked about the other night, there's some important things that we want to go over uh, as low-hanging fruit when it comes to preparing for an exam. It's, you know, you got to put your time in. You definitely have to give yourself enough time to be able to prepare for an exam. And it's not something that you're going to just sit down one day and just start flipping through the National Electrical Code and be able to pass an exam. It's typically not what's what's going to happen. I mean, you have to prepare a little bit for this. Uh, the good news is if you're sitting for an exam, there's a good chance that you have uh, some time in the field. You've got your man hours, uh, your hands-on, and you, you've learned the jargon in the trade, and you're pretty familiar with it. And now you're just getting ready to test. So there's some principles that we want to we wanna talk about uh, that prepares you for the exam. Obviously, you need to know how to use an ohm's wheel uh, pie chart, uh, and most exams are going to give you that. So they're going to give you that on the exam, uh, give you a little cheat sheet or whatnot. But in some states, you literally can write it in your code book. So in Texas, for example, you have all those nice code panel member pages in the front of your NEC, which has a lot of blank space. So that's a great place to write some formulas, uh, voltage drop formulas, and all those kind of things. So you can utilize that space. In some states, you can't do that, right? So that's not going to be a benefit to you. But they tend to give you uh, the Ohm's wheel during the, the exam, okay? Another thing I tell people to do is sometimes they don't catch it is if you get an Ohm's wheel sticker and you place the Ohm's wheel sticker on the cover of your NEC, uh, they think that it blends in with the NEC and basically you have your Ohm's wheel right on your, your NEC, right on the, right on the cover. Uh, it's worth doing yeah, to see. Uh, but again, check with your state, see what's going on, what's testing, what's what's allowed in your state. Just some little things to think about. Now, a couple of things that I always tell people right up front. So they tests are ten, generally broken into two categories. Some of the exams will have uh, a test protocol, whereas the actual lookup code questions are also incorporating calculations. So all in one exam. If you're in that state, one of the methods that I've talked about many times in my other podcasts is what's called a three-run method, whereas you go through it, answer what you know, mark the ones that you spend more than a minute or two on, uh, mark them for later, and just go through in the, in questions that you're just going to inherently know. Then you make a second wave, and you go through and you answer the questions and give a little more time to those that you marked uh, that you need to spend a little more time with. Uh, again, keeping very uh, good track of, of, of your time. And then the third wave is you pick up all those stragglers that you didn't get on the second wave when you spent more than a minute and a half, two minutes on those as well. Again, so cumulatively, you probably have four minutes on those tougher ones. 
but also it gives you the time now to do uh, calculations. And in many of those one type question tests or those tests that only have uh, uh, the questions that you look up in the code, but also calculations are all embedded in one exam, then there's a great chance that even if you didn't get all of the calculations right, you'd still pass your, your test. Um, now, some states have migrated to where it's a two-test te uh, two protocol, whereas you have a lookup test, and then you have a separate electrical calculations exam. Two different ones, so you have to take them differently. Now, the good news is usually you pass one. You don't have to retake that one again, uh, but it's a pain in the neck to, to have to redo all this, reschedule again. So, again, if you can pass it on the first go, that's the best approach that you can go. Um, but when you're doing the two tests, you really have to focus on each one differently. And there's usually a lot less questions on the calculation test, obviously, than it is on the lookup. Lookups are just simply lookup. And of course, many of you that listen to this podcast probably have ventured over to our website uh, and uh, over to our YouTube channel, ultimately get there, uh, youtube.com forward slash master the NEC. And we have a, a video on how to examine the root. Uh, it's not a 100% process. Uh, you're not going to be able to find every answer in the index. You're going to find a lot of them. And again, if you have to look up every question on an exam, chances are you're not going to pass uh, because you're just going to run out of time. So when people tell you prepare for an exam and they say use the index or the table of contents or whatnot, again, that is a fallacy in a sense that you can't look up every question. You just don't have the time to look up every question. So you're just using the, the index in the back of the book uh, or the table of contents to kind of push you and help you if you really are stuck on one. Uh, again, that's like your second wave or even your third wave where you really have to go in it. See, the first wave, what you're trying to do is buy yourself some extra time. It means you're answering questions that you just flat out know and you don't really have to look them up. I mean, you know the answer. Uh, whether or not you've been doing it for a while or you just, uh, you know, it's something common you're used to doing. So that's uh, the benefit of going through it in multiple waves. Uh, secondly, preparing for an exam, uh, you definitely want to give yourself enough time to really master your craft as far as looking things up in the NEC. And uh, there's no substitute for time. And that is flipping through the code book, looking at things. Some things are going to stick in your memory. Some things are not. Uh, but the things that do stick, you'll be surprised. It'll come out on an exam or, or something, uh, and you'll be able to, to really answer that quickly. Okay. So, and the other thing is you need to study with a purpose. And when I say study with a purpose, many people have heard me say this, is if you're going to use an exam question database or whatever you're going to use, which is perfectly fine, it allows you to take that question, whether you get it right or wrong is irrelevant. It allows you to actually dig down and look through the code and physically look things up. And there's no substitute for having that purpose. And that's purpose, getting into the code book and looking things up. That is uh, the, the greatest way to solidify your knowledge base of the NEC is don't just go flipping through because it has no meaning. If you look for a question you now have a goal, you now have purpose, and now you go looking through the NEC 
And that's how you pick up that extra level of knowledge, right? Moving through it. Uh, with that said, it's uh, people ask me all the time, what is my process of learning? And I like to say it's 90 days to truly prepare for a test. That means two or three hours, three times a week for 90 days. Um, if you use a program like our Fast Tracks, it's much easier to do that because the information is fed to you through a program and there's a lot of exams you take online. Uh, if you're not using that and you're using just exam questions, that's fine, but you need to get a good selection of exam questions so that you can literally look things up. And that's what moves you in and out of the code. Uh, other than that, people say 90 days. Now, if you've been doing this for a while and you're preparing or you took a test and you've been preparing and you failed it by a couple questions, I recommend that you come back and you reevaluate where your weakness is. And most of the exams that you take will give you a printout if it's PSI, they'll give you a printout for where your weaknesses are. And you can focus on those weaknesses. Uh, and so if it's services and you want to spend that extra time working now, uh, you can find online free resources that, that focus just on service type questions, 230. Uh, so uh, you just simply go to your Google and type free electrical exam questions and you'd be surprised what you get. Uh, I will remind you that they're not always accurate but they still get you searching for the code and they might not be current. Okay. They might be on the 2014 code or 2017 and you're studying in the 2020 or whatever you're doing. Just remember that that's okay because the half the battle, right, is focusing on looking things up in the code. And, and you, when you go in there for, for just a, a purpose, then things seem to, to stick a little better. You'll remember things a little bit better. And that's the whole goal with, 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 attacking this with a purpose. Okay. I don't, I'm not a big believer in just randomly whipping through the code book and trying to remember stuff because you just won't remember it. It just becomes mush. So you have to have a purpose, really go for a goal. All right. Now, some of the things that I tell people that when you're preparing for an exam, uh, again, 90 days, if you've prepared and you are having trouble, but you've really been studying, you watched all our videos and things like that, then what you need to do is you really need to focus on some of the things that, again, are giving you trouble and then focus on that area. Like if it's services applications, if you're going to just go into the code book, focus on 230 and literally read 230 from the beginning section one all the way up to the end because you need to read them and take it in. And what you do is you take notes on anything that you don't understand in 230. Anything that's like, I read it, but I don't get it. Write it down and send that question off to people like me or somebody else that can take the time. Uh, and again, some of us respond quicker than others to be able to explain to you what this means, but be very articulate about what you're asking so that we can give you a, 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 a logical response that's going to help you learn rather than just say, what, you don't understand that? What, you can't understand what you're reading? Because that is not the way an educator should do it. We'll try to break it down. Okay, we don't know it all, but we'll try to, to break it down. But that's still studying for a purpose. That's still studying for a reason. I'm going into an area where my weakness is at, right? So if motors were your weakness, then you spend a lot of time in 430 and you spend a lot of time studying. So I tell people all the time, don't run away from your weakness. Focus on your weakness. And that's going to help you get better with taking an exam. It's going to remove that anxiety, now, up to this point, there's other things that you need to do to prepare you. 
uh, for an exam. In other words, remember to convert all percentages down to decimals, okay? If it's 80%, you start from the right of the zero and move two spaces to the left, so it's 0 0.80. So just remember you're breaking things down. Uh, if it's 125%, you do a multiplication, you start from the five, right side of the five, you move it over left two spaces, then it's 1.25, okay? So as, if you already know these type of things, then it's a no-brainer for you. But I find it much easier for people to do a calculation. Now, some of the, cal obviously calculators can do percentages, uh, but in other applications, percentages aren't going to work for you on a calculator where you need to break things down in more detail. So I would just get used to uh, naturally breaking everything down into a, its decimal value. The same time that you would get any fractions. Again, pretty simple to start with the numerator, which is the number on the top of a fraction, and then you have the denominator, which is the value on the bottom, okay? And simply taking like one-sixth. If you get a one-sixth value, uh, what is that value? So you simply go one divided into six, and it's 0.166. And you do that down through the chain. So it doesn't matter whether it's two-fifths, three-sixths, uh, one-half, same concept. Again, one-half is going to be 0.50. No different than three-sixths is going to be 0.50. So once you break that down into the decimals, it's much easier to work that in a an exam application. Okay. Um, so just get used to all those, those type of concepts. Uh, understand how to break down percentages. Again, so if I told you that it's 32.5%, then you basically move the decimal two points to the left, and that would be 0.325. Okay, same as I told you before, 125%. Basically, you move it, start from the right, and you move it two spaces to the left, it's 1.25. Same if you see 250%, like what we deal with, with inverse time circuit breakers, when we're dealing with motors, short circuit, and ground fault protection, you have 430.52 table. Obviously, that's going to give you percentage values, but when you're doing the math, it's much easier to break that down uh, by simply moving the decimal spaces from the right of the zero to the left, two spaces, 2.50, and work your math that way. You're not going to have a problem if you, if you work that math, okay? All right, other things that I remind people of is things like... Uh, reciprocal. So one of the things that will serve you well on an exam is understanding that 80% is a reciprocal of 125%. Okay. So if you're on an exam and you want to convert, for example, convert 80% into a decimal, again, you're moving it two spaces to the left, then that makes it uh, 0.80. Then you take one and divide it into 0 0.80 and that equals 125%. So just remember when you have an overcurrent protective device and it's continuous load and you're going to limit it to uh, 80%, it, the reciprocal of that is 125%. So if I'm given a question with the conductor in the ampacity, then I take that at 125% size my breaker and my breaker's inherently already going to be uh, based on that because it was a continuous load. And we knew that continuous load on the conductor has to carry over to a breaker, okay? A lot of questions also people ask me is, if I have a 15 amp breaker, can I load that breaker up at 15 amps? Absolutely. I'd feel quite gypped if I couldn't get 15 amps out of a 15 amp breaker. However, when it becomes a continuous load, then that's where we have to make some kind of, of adjustment because then we have to limit that load on that breaker at 80% because it is a known continuous load. It's going to be on for three hours or more. Uh, a lot of the other questions that we get on an exam is people have a question about continuous load and continuous duty, and they'll mistakenly answer that as 
uh, three hours or more, and a continuous duty is much different than a continuous load, okay? So continuous duty deals with motors, whereas continuous load deals with any application where the code tells you it's a continuous load, or it is on for a known three hours or more. For example, lighting applications uh, in buildings, commercial buildings, it is typically going to be on for three hours or more. Electric signs, lighted signs outside, three hours or more. Uh, the good news in the 2020 NEC, we don't have to calculate for continuous load for lighting anymore. That's actually built into Table 220.12. So that's already incorporated into it based on ASHRAE studies that was done uh, in the energy codes and, and all those type of things. So we get some benefits there that you'll learn about as you move into the 2020 code session. Um, but some of the other things that, that we're doing with it, squares, for example, if you see 10 squared, uh, then it's just 10, 10 times 10. If you see 25 squared, it's just 25 by 25. Uh, just kind of breaking those things down and understanding if you see something like that in an equation, how you do squaring of a number, okay? It is basically, it's basically squaring the number means multiplying the number by itself. So 10 squared is 10 times 10. 100 squared is 100 times 100. So just remember those little things on an exam. Um, if you get into an exam question where it has parentheses and things like that, um, just be careful with that because whenever the numbers are actually in a parenthesis, complete the math in the parentheses first and then work the rest of the problem. So start, what I like to tell people is start from within and work your way out. So if you see a question where it has values in a parenthesis, work that first, okay? So if it's an Ohm's Law question, uh, then you want to work the value in, because, for example, if it's a three-phase Ohm's Law value, then it's 1.732. We're familiar with that. But it's E times 1.732, E being voltage. So in this, in this case, you want to make sure it would be, if it was 42,000 watts, and it was 208 volts, three-phase, then logically I'm thinking, okay, if I'm working this out, I know that it's, if I'm using Ohm's law, okay, to find, uh, depending on what I'm trying to formulate and what I'm trying to find, if I'm trying to find amps, then it's the watts divided by the voltage. And in this case, it's three-phase. So in a parenthesis, typically, you'll have E times 1.732. So if it was 208 times 1.732, and those that are familiar with uh, my, my transformer series, you'll know that it's going to equal 360, and we use just plain 360. So in that case, if it was 42,000 watts, then you would divide it by 360, and that would be 116.6, okay, of what our amps would be, all right? So just remember to solve the values that are in the parentheses first, and then continue to work out the problem. It's just a much easier way to, to understand it. Uh, remember, if you're dealing with transformers, that you're dealing with a three-phase system, then you've got to deal with whether it's 480 or 208. And so you'll have a, a KVA value that they'll give you on the exam, uh, and then they'll give you a voltage. And if it's three-phase, then you're going to divide it by the value of Remember, parentheses. So if it's three-phase, it would be E, whatever the voltage is, times 1.732. Now, if you learn, and you're real savvy, you'll learn ahead of time that if I say, okay, if I have 480, and I do that times 1.732, that that is 831. So that's a number that you remember. So if it's 480, I'm multiplying the KVA, divide, excuse me, dividing the KVA by 831 is what's going to give me the actual uh, ampacity values 
uh, based on three phase. Uh, the same thing for 208. Uh, it would be you just take 208 times 1.732, and that is the 360. So people remember 360 for the 208 value. And that's going to help you when you're doing transformers as well, when you're trying to size primary current or secondary current. You need to know it if it's three-phase application. All right. Um, obviously, if it's single phase, you just use a 120 or 240 uh, for that application. So just kind of remember uh, those type of things. Uh, it really makes it easy for you to remember. Now, remember uh, other things like rounding. Uh, it's 0.5, a major fraction. You round up if it's five or above. So if I have 0.1245, then it's going to be 0.125. Uh, and things like that. So remember rounding, and if it's not a five, if it was 1.243, then it would be 1.24, you drop off the three, okay? So it's kind of a rounding. That's if you're rounding, again, rounding out to the fourth number, okay? Just remember when you're rounding that if it's below five, you round down. If it's five or above, you round up, okay? That's something that might serve you well uh, on an exam, okay? Um, let's see here. What else uh, can I give you as far as numbers, formulas, basic formulas? Well, that's about it. Just remember Ohm's Law. Remember how you're dealing. Again, if you have an Ohm's Law wheel that's available to you during your exam, or if you get your own, uh, just remember some of the values, some of the things you're working with. If you're solving for power, for example, it's I squared times R, I being the current, current squared. We talked about squaring. If it's 120, then it's 120 times 120 times R being the resistance, which might be wire, might be load resistance, whatever it is. And that's going to be one of the ways to solve for power. Um, so get familiar with the, with the power wheel. There's many different types of uh, uh, formulas that are on there, depending on what value you're searching for. So make sure you get a hold of that so that you don't have any issues understanding uh, basic, simple, fundamental calculations using a wheel. And, and they won't expect you to remember all that, okay? You shouldn't have to remember the entire sequence of it. They should allow you to be able to have a, a wheel that can do this type of calculation, okay? Or this kind of formula to help you do the calculation. Now, when it comes to things like voltage drop, ironically, it shows up on tests all the time. Uh, voltage drop is... You know, it's not a requirement of the National Electrical Code except for fire pump applications, uh, whether it's for starting 15% or running 5% or, or other applications for, for emergency. Generally, through the code, it is a great practice, and it's really going to increase the longevity of things like uh, motors and equipment uh, running efficiently within a certain voltage range that equipment was designed to run for or, or be within. Um, but at the end of the day, it still ends up being on an exam anyway all the time. So just kind of remember your values. If the question gives you the actual conductor size, then just remember if you're doing single phase, it's 2 times K, which is a constant. Okay. And they'll give you the constant. All right. So it's 2 times K, which is copper, for example, be 12.9. But they'll give you these values. And you do 2 times K times the amps, which will be an I, and then the length. Uh, and so, again, you, you only do the length in one way because you've got a two on the beginning of it anyway. So it's one way. Um, and so in that, you divide, take that value, you solve it, and you divide that by, and if they give you a conductor size, then all you have to do is go to Chapter 9, Table uh, 8, 
and find what the circular mill is of that conductor they give you. And you put that on the bottom part, so that becomes the denominator. And the, 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 the math that you're doing, the 2 times K times I times L, that becomes the numerator, if you will. And simply divide the top uh, into the bottom. And, and that, that's going to give you what your, your, your voltage drop is, your actual voltage drop. Now, the same equation might be on an exam where they don't give you the size, but they tell you it needs to be, you know, can't exceed a 3% voltage drop. Okay. If that's the case, then one of the ways that you can do it is the exact same equation, except in the bottom where you're not putting circular mills, you're actually putting the actual voltage value of the drop. So, for example, if it's uh, a, if they tell you it's a 3% voltage drop and it's a 240 volt circuit, and that's what they give you, then you just simply do 240 times 3%. And that is 7.2. So that's the value that you actually put down underneath in the uh, denominator portion of that equation. Um, a lot of people get confused and they'll actually put 3% down there. No, you want the value of 3%. Okay. So again, if it was a 120, do 120 times 3% and that's 3.6. That's the value you would put down to it. So you work the top portion out, then you divide it into the bottom portion and that'll give you the actual circular mill. And then you go to chapter eight. Uh, chapter 9, Table 8, and you're going to look for a conductor that has at least that circular mill. And that way you know that that run is not going to exceed, uh, uh, have a voltage drop more than 3%. Because you, you, put, you put all that, you put the maximum amount of voltage for that application in your equation. And so it's going to select, you know, you're going to be able to select a conductor. Now, people are using calculators for that, but that's just a simple concept of how to get voltage drop, whether or not the exam question gave you the conductor size and you had to work from there, or you didn't get the size of the conductor, but they made it clear the percentage of voltage drop that they didn't want you to exceed, and then you can work it out that way, okay? So that's, a, that's typically what you'd get on a voltage drop question, basically just that simple. Uh, so don't shy away from those type of questions. Again, I'd hate for you to get something, uh, fail an exam, based on something that was pretty simple as far as doing with a voltage drop application. And they've got to give you enough information for you to be able to do the equation, okay? I mean, they've, they've got to give it to you. Now, when it comes to exams, let's talk a little bit about things like motors. So on an exam, you'll have to do various calculations, and they're going to be very simple when it comes to motors. But they're going to give you some, and you need to be really comfortable with it. Now, of course, I have a video that talks about motors and really gets into detail about motors and, and things like that. But we just kind of wanted to give you kind of an overview of motors. So if we're talking about part two first, which is motor circuit conductors, uh, if it's a single motor, and so you're sizing to a single motor, and, and always assume motors is being continuous duty, okay? Unless they state otherwise, all right? So exam tip would be continuous duty, unless they make a, a statement that it's not continuous duty. So 430.22 deals with single motors. We have one motor, we're on a branch, that's it. So what do you size it to? If it's continuous duty, then you got 430.22 says that you take that motor's FLC, full load current. You get that in the back of the code, uh, back of 430. You have three tables that you primarily, primarily will use, and that's 430.248, 249, or 250. In fact, you probably won't use 249 very often as well, but 248 and 250 are going to become your best friends when it comes to uh, getting the FLC. Now, a lot of people ask me at this point, what's the difference between the FLC that's in the code 
versus the values that they give you on a nameplate that's on the actual motor. You only time you ever really use the nameplate on the motor for sizing anything other than overloads is when you're dealing when it's other than a continuous duty. And then that's going to send you to a little table for 30.22E. And if you look at that table, it'll be a combination of different types of motors, like things that'll be used for uh, an elevator or a freight or passenger uh, elevator or escalators or or things like that, okay, where the actual load on it's going to vary and it's more direct impulse related. In other words, it's for five minutes it's on and then it's off because, you know, going between floors. It's not continually running, but there's different values in here. Now, there also is a value here for continuous rated motor, which is different than a continuous duty motor. Please don't get it confused. But there's a table here that you're allowed to utilize this and basically still fundamentally works the same way except for when you get a, a motor that's not continuous duty, you're going to use the nameplate value. Any other time, you're going to use the FLC, which are the tables in the back of the book, because it keeps it consistent whether or not the motor changes over time or becomes more efficient motors or, or better wound motors. Ultimately, it still keeps a, a consistent ampacity value that we can size things like conductors and, and short circuit ground fault protection and be consistent. Okay, whereas the nameplate can change dramatically. All right, so we want consistency. And so that's what the tables in 430 will do. It'll give us that consistency we need. So just remember, you're going to always use the FLC value that are in 430.248 or 250. Those are your primary ones. You're going to use those values depending on the voltage uh, and the motor type for all of your sizing of your short circuit ground fault protection uh, you're ultimately going to use that for the motor so that you can size the feeder protection. And of course, you need that FLC when you're working it out in how to calculate feeder conductors that are supplying motors or multiple motors, or you're supplying a single motor. Okay. So uh, different things to, to, to realize, I could have a single motor controlled from a breaker in the panel going out straight to an overload, straight to a single motor. And so that whole branch circuit from the last overcurrent device, which was in the panel, is also going to be our short circuit ground fault protection. Uh, and all of that's going to be size of those conductors is 125% of the FLC. And that's what we get in 430.22 for a single motor. Okay. Now, we have other applications, for example, where we could be running conductors out and it hits a wireway and it drops down into separate uh, breakers which are short circuit ground fault protection for that sim single motor string, okay, for that one motor, it's all controlled by a feeder upstream, but it's tapped inside, so you have motor taps inside of a metal wireway, and that drops down. Uh, and the easiest way to remember that for an exam is typically I would size the, the taps coming down, okay, based on the size of the motor's short circuit ground fault protection. Um, in, in that scenario, but not the, the value that we get when we put the like 250%. It's more or less the value of whatever the circuit is for that motor. I'll talk about that in a second. So I want to get people confused with that. So feeders. Feeders that run out, you're going to end up looking at, so we just talked about single conductor. Um, and because of what I said a minute ago, I want to make sure I'm not getting you confused. That was the single application. Now we're moving into feeders. Now feeders, you're going to see is under 430.24. And so for an exam, just remember this, that when you have multiple motors, okay, with servo motors or other loads that might be coming out with a feeder and they, they're, they're hitting a, a wireway and they're dropping down, 
you want to make sure that you always calculate the motor's FLC first because when I'm sizing conductors, I need to know the FLC is mainly the largest motor of the actual set. And once I know it, then I can calculate the other motors that are on that same group. Okay. So in a sense, what we're doing is take the FLC of whatever the largest motor may be and do that at 125% because that's what it says in 430.241. So I take the full load current at 125%. Okay. Uh, and then I take the sum, okay, the sum of the full load current rating of all the other motors in the group as determined by 430.6A, okay? Now, 430.6A is, is what's telling us uh, the sizing and what allows us to use the tables in 430.248 and 250, okay? That's kind of the guidance that it's given us. That's why it's making reference back to 430.6A because that's where we, we actually get the guidance of where we get the ampacity values of the FLC. So if I have two motors and one of them is larger than the other, then I calculate and find the FLC for the largest one. I take that value FLC at 125%. And since the other motor is in the same group, and when we say group, we means that whatever motor you determined is the largest motor, any other motor that's connected to the same leads or lines as that motor is part of the group. You with me? So if I have three motors in there and two of them are connected to phase C uh, mutually, even though one of them might still have a connection to A, B, and C, if the one motor to phase C is the largest, and there's only one other motor that's connected to C, then that motor is in the same, quote, group, okay? So I take the largest motor at 125%, and I take the other motor that's in the same group, and I take its FLC at 100%, whatever its value is from the table, and I add those together, that's a summation, and that's how I size my conductor for my feeder that's going to be running those two, okay? And this takes into fact that, I could have multiple motors, but at any given time, it's not going to exceed more than these two motors running at the same time uh, and that type of scenario. So don't overthink it. That's what the code provides for us, and that's what we need to do. So that's sizing conductors. So we covered sizing single uh, single motors and we sizing feeder applications, okay? So that's that application. Now, before I lose sight of what we're talking about, we need to look at what do we do to size the short circuit ground fault protection, so the size of short circuit ground fault protection, that's your circuit breaker or it could be fuses, then you'll need to look at 430.52. Now, 430.52 is a table that tells us whether or not it's got non-time delay, dual element, instantaneous trip, or inverse time breaker, which is typically your normal circuit breaker. It's an inverse time. That's your normal circuit breaker. So most of the time on an exam, I see inverse time, and I see dual element, time delay fuses. Now, remember, if they don't say inverse time and they just say circuit breaker, then always assume a regular standard inverse time circuit breaker. Don't assume an instantaneous trip unless they tell you that otherwise. Stick with what would be just an inverse. Sometimes people writing exams don't absolutely give you everything uh, in the question that you need. So just kind of remember that. All right, so... When we do this, and now let's go back to that single motor application. Well, now we're going to size that short circuit ground fault protection. And let's say it's a, a, it says on the question and exam, it's a circuit breaker. So I'm going to know at this point, I've already done the math. I know what the FLC is of the motor. So now I'm going to go back and say, well, I take that FLC. And that's when you come to table 430.52. 
And actually the code section 430.52 is what gives you the, the direction to go over to this table, okay? And in this table, you'll see that a circuit breaker is 250% if it is a single phase motor or a three phase, which is an AC polyphase. Uh, and of course, you've also got for squirrel cage uh, other, than, other than the design B. So if it's squirrel cage with some other design standard on it uh, for efficient energy efficiency, then you would use that value. Um, and here is design B. So you have other than B and then, of course, B here for circuit breakers. Both are still 250%. Uh, the first thing that I would do here is convert this over to a decimal. So from the right, I'd move two spaces to the left. So it's 2.50. That's how I'm going to do my equation. And so I take the FLC and I do that times 2.50. And that's going to give me the size of my short circuit ground fault protection. Now, if it's not dealing with a feeder with multiple motors, it's just a single motor, then I'm allowed to go up to the next standard size. We're okay to do that, okay? So, uh, and you get that through the exception number one uh, that is in 430.52C, okay? You have some exceptions, okay? So it doesn't correspond, then I can go to the next, next highest is permitted. But you do have some exceptions down here for different things, exceptions to this table. Um, if it's not sufficient for starting, you have a one, two, three, four. We're not gonna go into those typically and not in the exam, but just be aware that if they give you a class size fuse, or, or, or non-time delay fuse or, 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 or something like that, that you want to make sure that you go down and you look at some of these uh, exceptions, number two. Now, typically on an exam, it'll tell you whether or not exceptions apply or not. Most times it'll tell you that exceptions do not apply unless they tell you they apply. And that should be a trigger for you to realize that if they're going to ask a question like this and they make a statement about the um, exception, that I always wanna stop and make sure that I look at the exception and read the question again a little bit closer and so that I don't accidentally do something that I shouldn't have done and overlooked anything, okay? So, but typically on an exam, it's basically gonna be that simple. They wanna know what the short circuit ground fault protection is. And again, of course, uh, it is also serving as the protection for the conductors. It's perfectly fine. Uh, 240.4D tells us that, uh, for example, a 14 gauge is protected at 15 amps, 12 gauge at 20 amps, and a 10 gauge is 30. And they want you to stick to that. The reality is with motors and HVAC applications, uh, you don't have to do that. And that tells you that in 240.4G. Uh, and of course, the basic charging statements of 240.4 allow you to be able to do things in G. Uh, and uh, in this case, many people freak out when they see a 12 gauge being protected by a 80 amp breaker or a 60 amp breaker or something like that. They freak. And if it's a motor, remember, it's going to handle the, the running current. Remember how we have to size the conductors uh, as a continuous duty at 125%. So there's a fudge factor that's built in there uh, for the FLC, which is the value, the full low current value. So we're okay. It's still protected, but motors have a certain amount of inrush and we want to be able to those motors to start and run properly. So understanding that that is acceptable practice is going to get you a long way because people freak out. And remember, exams are not real world. They're just exams. They are going to give you scenarios, values, uh, questions that you might look at and shake your head and go, I'd never do that in the real world. This is not a real world scenario. All right, so the next question is, we, we size the short circuit ground fault protection for a single motor. What about if we're protecting it for the feeder for those multimotor motors? When we size the conductors, we did that based on 430.24. Uh, 
now we're going to say, well, I've got two motors and now I need to determine what my uh, feeder protection is. So this is an example where it's uh, 430.62 and you're not going to use the next size up allowance. In other words, you can't, you can't go up. In this case, when you're doing a feeder application, then for feeders, you have to go, you have to go down. So you have to, you have to size it down. Okay. So when we read the National Electrical Code, again, we're, we're, we're now off of single motors. You're in one of those exam questions that has multiple motors uh, or multiple loads on a, on, a circuit, on a feeder. Because remember, you could have a motor, and you in, in 430.24 also said that, well, what if you had a panel? So I had a feeder that's feeding not only a motor but also a panel, that that's okay but if it's continuous loads, I take the loads in that panel when I'm adding everything up and I take those values at 125%. If it's non-continuous, I just take it non-continuous, I just take it at 100. So it doesn't mean that you could have just all motors on it. Okay, so 430.24 when sizing conductors is very clear that it deals with motors in that feeder or it could also be other loads other than motors in that being fed from that same feeder. So just keep that in mind. Uh, highlight 430.24 uh, to make that really clear because that is, again, if you can highlight in your code book, you do that and it'll kind of let you know that that's dealing with it. Now, in this case, again, we're talking about the motor's feeders short circuit ground fault protection. And what it says in the code, it says a feeder supplying a specific fixed motor loads, and the loads is the S is in parentheses, and consisting of conductors sized based on 430.24, which we've already done, shall be provided with a protective device having a rating or setting not greater than the largest rating or setting of the branch circuit short circuit ground fault protection for any motors supplied by the feeder. Again, we, we, we're going to have to size each one of them and whichever one becomes the largest short circuit ground fault protection for that single motor is you, you, you have to do the whole math out on it when you're doing multiple motors like this. Because I want to know what the short circuit ground fault protection is for each motor. And I'm looking at the largest one. Okay. And so once I do that and I work that out, okay, then I take that value and then I take the sum of the full load currents of the other motors of the group. So here we have this group thing again. So again, if I have three motors on a feeder and I find out which one of these motors, I mean, remember now, I have to work these things from the ground back to the feeder. I have to work it from the FLC and I have to size the short circuit ground fault protection for that individual motor, okay? And I have to do that for each one. So if I had three motors, I'm doing it for each one so that I know what the short circuit ground fault protection is at the single location, which that one was allowed to round up, remember? But the feeder protection, we can't round up. We have to round down. So I want to know first. So if the first one's 90, the next one's 70, and the third one is 50 amps, and that was our short circuit ground fault protection, basically each one of those were, uh, if it's a circuit breaker, it was 250% of the FLC. Okay, that's how we did it. Once I know what each one of these are, then I take the largest short circuit ground fault protection, let's say it was the 90, and I take it, right? And then once I take the largest one, then I add the sum of the other motors FLC that is in the same group. And so we're back to that group thing. If all the motors were connected to a three-phase leg A, B, and C, 
then they're all on the same group. They're all in a group. So I take the F the 90 amps from the a short circuit ground fault protection for that single motor, which is the largest one. And then I take the FLC from the other motors that are in the group. Okay. So, and then that comes and that becomes my value. And then whatever that value is, if it was 92 amps, I can't go up for feeder protection. I can't round up to hundred. I have to round down to 90. Okay. So that's the rule that talks about that. You cannot exceed it. All right. Um, what else? Can I give you with motors that might be beneficial? Oh, overload protection. So another times in a question, you'll get a question on overload protection. They'll simply ask you what's the overload. Now, this is an example we said earlier where you're going to use 430.32, and this is going to be based on the nameplates. Uh, many people refer to as an FLA, uh, but it also in the code is referred to as FLC as well. So you have to paint this mental thing. Remember, FLC uh, tables in the back are full load current. Nameplate, I like to refer to as FLA, full load amps, or full load actual. Um, and that is on the nameplate. Again, that's used for overloads. And again, in non-continuous duty motors, like five-minute motors, cycle motors, um, continuous rated motors, uh, 30 and 60-minute motors, like elevator applications, then you're going to use the nameplate value for that. Okay, But in this case... Most all occasions where it's continuous duty motors uh, and we're dealing with that, that we're going to actually take the values from the, from the FLC. Okay. So only nameplate when you're using it for uh, doing things like the uh, allowances for non-continuous duty or for overloads. So we're in overloads now. So we're going to use the nameplate value. And so when you look at the, the National Electrical Code, you're going to be, when overloads, if you get that question on an exam, you're going to be in 430.32. Now, another thing I'll remind you, at the beginning of 430, you've got this nifty little chart, and it'll tell you what part you need to be in, whether it's for motor feeders, uh, and that's where you'll see 430.24. Uh, for overload protection, you'll see that a motor overload protection is part three. If you can write in your book, there's a little space to the right or to the left. Here's where you put a page number or here's where you put an article number like 430.32 next to overload uh, in the margins uh, and draw an arrow to it. It just helps save you time. It just lets you get there a lot quicker. Okay. All right. So another way that it kind of does that is if you look above that, you will do see where the parts are identified out and you'll see where it talks about all the different uh, values, motor conductors, it'll tell you 430.21 through 29, and it'll tell you what part, things like that. Okay, so there is some guidance here, but I'm saying the more that you can write down, if you're permitted to write in your code book, that's a big thing now, if you're permitted to do it, then it can help you out, okay, but that's where you make some of your, some of your little notes and stuff like that. So anyway, 430.32, now understanding this, there's two different things. Most of the time on an exam, it's going to be dealing with a separate overload device, okay? So we're just going to be, because they're going to be talking about an overload device. Now, it doesn't mean in all exams, but typically when they're asking you about overload, it is not an integral overload. Uh, it's not a thermal protector. Uh, it's a, or it's not integrated with the motor, that it's actually a separate overload device. Although the code would give us direction on all of those, uh, and, the, and there is actually for thermal protection, there is a percentage value that you're going to use based on the full load current. Um, 
in this ca- in in that case, you're going to use the actual uh, tables in the back of the book. But in this case here, for a separate overload device, you're literally going to use the nameplate, and it says that right in the allowance of 430.32, um, and I believe that is a one. And I tell people on an exam, make sure they just highlight the word nameplate in A1 and just right there so that they know that they're dealing with the nameplate so they don't get confused when it says motor nameplate full load current and they actually go to the tables. Uh, if they want you to go to the tables, uh, you'll go, they'll tell you to go to the tables. In this case, they want you to use a nameplate. So highlight the nameplate if you can, underline it. If they allow you to write in your code book, your state might, might not allow it. But this is the values that you utilize, okay, if you're just doing a first step in an overload uh, sizing, okay? So if the motor has a marked service factor of 1.15 or greater, then you're going to do 125% of the nameplate's current value. If the motor is, has a temperature rise of 40 degrees C or less, then you're going to use 125%. If none of those apply... In other words, it's not greater than 1.15, so it's like 1.14, or the motor rise, mark temperature rise is not 40 degrees C or less, then you're going to use 115%. Now, here's the trick. If the motor that they give you in the exam question has a marked temperature rise of 40 C or less, or it has a marked service factor of 1.15 or greater, either or, doesn't have to have both of them. If it has either one of those in there, then it kicks in the 125%. If neither one of those apply, then you go with the 115% for all other motors. Now, the code also gives us some more provisions here. It says, look, modifications to these values are permitted in 430.32C. And what that means is, if there's an issue with starting the motor are getting it running because of these overloads, then you're allowed to jump over to C. Now, kind of keep these in that order. It means you always go to A1. You can only go to 430.32C if there's trouble with the motor starting under 430.32A1, okay? So that's where you, you're able to go to. So when you get down to C, again, that's a selection of overload, and it tells us, in the language, here's what it says. It says, where the sensing element or setting or sizing of the overload device selected in accordance with 430.32A1 and 430.32B1, because you have an allowance in, in B1, okay? That's just, those are for automatically started one horsepower or less motors. So if that allowance, and it's not sufficient to start the motor or actually carry the load, here's what it says. It says a higher size sensing element or incremental sizing uh, settings or sizing shall be permitted to be used, provided the trip current of the overload device, okay, so this is where you couldn't use the standard one, the 125% or 115% that we did normally, that now you're moving into C, and it says, look, the trip current setting of that device does not exceed the following percentages of motor nameplate full load current. So what this is doing is giving you some higher values to use because it just simply can't get the motor running. And so here it's the same values, 115 or greater service factor. It's now 140%. It gives you a little more cushion there. Uh, And then, of course, when it comes to the temperature rise, again, 40C or less, it's 140 as well. So you get a bump, okay, from 125 
up to 140 because the motor won't start. Now, you can't just jump to the 140. You have to start with the 125 or the 115 if it's not one of the motors that are listed here, whether it's a service factor 115 or greater or 40C or less. If neither one of those apply, then it's 115. That's your starting point. You can only go to C when those aren't sufficient enough to start the motor or run the motor. Now, on an exam, they will literally tell you that. They'll say, where the motor is not, where the overload is not sufficient enough for running, that's immediate trigger that you can jump down to C, and that's when you're going to go to 140% if the service factor is 1.15 or greater, or if the temperature rise is 40C or less, then either one of those are in play, then you're going to use 140%. Okay, and you're going to do it of the nameplate value. Uh, if neither one of those come into play, then you're going to use 130% of the nameplate FLA, uh, which they still refer to as FLC, but it's not. It's why nameplate's in front of it. Okay, so just kind of highlight that word nameplate, underline it, whatever you need to do to make sure that you don't make the mistake and you go to the FLC. You use the FLC for everything else for the most part, but when it comes to overloads, you want to use the nameplate. Okay, so that's the kind of concept you want to go with there. Now, let's let's talk a little bit about we we ran that feeder for the motors and now we're going to tap that feeder. And there's some caveats that we have to, to, to take place here. Now, we have to already assume if we were doing an exam, for example, we have to already assume that we, we've calculated out each one of the, the motor sets itself. You know, the FL, the FLC of the motor, the overload, the the short circuit ground fault protection. We assume we've done all that uh, for each one of the motors, but we're tapping onto a feeder. Okay, well, 430.28 deals with feeder taps. And so on an exam, just remember, first things first, we have to make sure that that feeder conductor, okay, or that feeder tap conductors shall have an ampacity that's not less than required by part two. All right. And what we mean by that, I'm sorry, I had a little delay there. What we mean by that is that we've already calculated what that individual motor size conductors would be going to that individual motor based on part two. So it might be what's going down to that single motor uh, that you're tapping from is based on requirements of uh, part two, which in our case, 430.22 for that single motor. Or, you know, and so again, assuming that you size that and in the worst case scenario is you always size that to the its full size, not the full size of the feeder, but the full size of whatever the motor's load is when you're sizing at 125%, that's what you're sizing at. Um, some people don't do the math in the real world. They just simply size the feeder tap the same size as the feeder, uh, and that's probably a waste, but you can do that. Obviously, if it's the same size, it's probably just an extension of the feeder, not necessarily a tap. The reason we're tapping is so we can get the benefits of having a smaller conductor at the point of the tap, but anyway... So that's your, your, you know, kind of following your normal rules. And it's letting me know that that feeder tap, remember, we're tapping, let's say, in a wire weight, we're tapping onto the feeder that's feeding multiple motors. Um, we also want to make sure that it terminates in a brand circuit protected device. In our case, it terminates into what's probably going to be for that motor set. It's going to be the sh based on short circuit ground fault protection, but it is still the brand circuit protected device. Okay, it's still what it is. And... In addition, shall meet one of the following requirements. Okay, so we're talking about that tap that taps to the feeder 
It drops down to the short circuit ground fault protection for motor and then ultimately probably goes to an overload and then goes down via a flexible metal conduit or whatever you want to run to the motor itself. So we're talking about that string. Now that's the tap conductors that are coming from the tap to the feeder down to the short circuit branch, uh, short circuit ground fault protection, uh, which is also the, the protective device. That's the tap. Once we get on the load side of that short circuit ground fault protection, that, that branch circuit ground fault protection, um, then we are going to size again. That's where we would get the same concept as 125% of the FLC for a continuous duty motor. Okay. We're talking about the tap portion. So of that tap portion from the feeder to the branch circuit protected device, which again is, is serving as a short circuit ground fault protection as well, based on 430.250, uh, excuse me, 430.52. I don't know where I'm at with that. So we have some rules and shall meet one of the following, not all of the following, any one of the following. So we, remember, we're talking feeder taps now. It says being closed either by an enclosed controller or by a raceway, be not more than 10 feet in length, and for field installations, be protected by an overcurrent device in line, on, the, on the line side of the tap conductor and rating or setting of which shall not exceed 1,000% of the tap conductor's ampacity. So whatever that tap conductor's ampacity is, the protection that we'd have on that, on the line side, is the feeder. Because, again, we're talking about a feeder tap. And as long as that, I can go up to 10 feet from that tap and no protection at that tap, as long as my feeder protection, which is, again, on the line side of the tap, obviously, because um, that's the feeder supplying it, if you will, as long as it's not, doesn't exceed 1,000% of the tap conductor's ampacity. So whatever the tap conductor's ampacity is, size that you choose based on the motor and based on what you worked out, uh, that as long as that value, okay, the, the overcurrent device, the feeder protection, does not exceed the ampacity of that tap conductor by 1,000%, okay? So take whatever the ampacity is of that tap conductor, whatever it's sized is based on your motor, and do that times 1,000% and make sure that the feeder protection does not exceed that. So that's one method. The next one says, okay, well, the tap feeder tap, number two, says have an ampacity of at least one-third that of the feeder conductors, be suitably protected from physical damage or enclosure in a raceway, and not more than 25 feet in length. Okay, so I'm tapping that feeder in a box, and I'm feeding them my, my, my motor string, my single motor, because I'm going to have multiple motors, but I'm just talking about one feeder tap right now. As long as that conductor, that tap conductor, has an ampacity that is at least a third of the feeder's size. And remember, we size the feeder based on the size of all these motors. So we've already done that. That's the part two we talked about in 430.24. So we've already sized that feeder. We're just doing the tap, the, the connection we're making to it. Uh, and in doing that, we have to remember that, okay, well, we had the 10-foot one, but now we can go up to 25 feet, provided that they're protected from physical damage or they're enclosed in a raceway, check, we're fine. It's not more than 25 feet, we're fine. And that conductor that we utilize is an ampacity that's at least one-third of the feeder, Okay. And hopefully, obviously, it's sized to handle whatever the, the you know the motor rating is, FLC, 125%. We're, we've done the tap. Hopefully, that's all good. 
But then if we want to go 25 foot, it's kind of like a, this is their version of 430.28. It's kind of our version of our tap rules for feeders that we see in 240.21, right? It's, it's, it's a motor's version of that. And so that's what we're doing here. And then, of course, the third option, have an ampass not less than the feeder conductors. So that's probably what I was saying earlier, what most people do. They won't get into the math. They don't want to get into the sizing. They just literally tap that feeder with the same size feeder tap, and then they run that down to the short circuit ground fault protection, which is also serving as the branch circuit protected device. And in that portion of it, it's the same size as the feeder. And they probably do that more often than not and just, just say, forget about it. I don't want to worry about the 10-foot rule. I don't. I don't want to worry about the 25 foot and being at least one third. They just say, screw it. I just tap it. If it's feeding it with a, a one aught, they'll say, tap it with a one aught straight down to the, the breaker, provided it'll fit on the breaker. Uh, that's something else you have to take into consideration. If it's a smaller motor, it's not probably not going to work. Okay. So that's an example of what options you have. They still has to terminate into a protected device. Okay. It still has to have the, uh, the everything done normally in its calculations uh, as we would in part two, which covers a single motor or a multiple motor. Uh, in this case, we're talking about a single motor that's being tapped. So I want to make sure that those conductors are at least sized to handle the motor. Okay. And so, again, if I want to go to 10 feet, then I just make sure that that conductor that we're sizing based on part two, which we already went over, whether it's single motor 430.22 or multiple motors, okay? Uh, in our case, we're really focused on a single motor because we're just talking about one of them. If there was three there, we're working one at a time. So usually it's going to be 125% of the FLC, and that's our sizing for that single motor. But when we go to make that tap to the feeder, we have to make sure that it's one, it's adequate, and two, it meets the rules of one, two, or three. It can meet any one of these uh, for that tap down to the protective device um, for that motor. So you have options uh, here, but most people won't get into the calculations of that feeder tap sizing. They just make it the full size all the way down. Uh, and that can be a problem if you're actually connecting it into uh, a overcurrent short circuit ground fault protection, which is also the, uh, the overcurrent device. If you're doing that, um, then... It, well, it's also the protective device. If you're doing that, you have to make sure it can terminate right. And sometimes a feeder might be too large that it can't tap off of it with the same size conductors and go to it, okay? So just something to think about. I don't know how much of that will actually be on an exam, but it's something that I thought you should probably know about. Okay, one of the other aspects that people ask about a lot, and it's not typically on an exam, but it's talking about what if I have several smaller motors that are not over one horsepower that are on a one branch circuit. So you have one branch circuit and it's supplying multiple loads. Okay, well the code allows for this, a provision for this in 430.53. And it basically says several motors or loads, it doesn't have to be motors, uh, loads on one branch circuit. Okay, so before we talked about a feeder, multiple motors, and feeder tap. In this case, we're talking about several motors or loads on one branch circuit. Now, it says in the code, it says two or more motors or one or more motors and other loads shall be permitted to be connected to the same branch circuit under conditions specified in 
D and in 430.53 A, B, or C. Okay, so you have D, which was single motor taps, tapping off to the motor. And then you have A, B, and C, which deal with not over one horsepower, uh, if small rated motors protected, uh, then you have other group installations. Usually um, we're talking exams, so this is not a full-scale motor class. Usually on an exam, the question revolves around 430.53A, which is not over one horsepower. So we might have two smaller motors. We might have a fourth horsepower and one sixth horsepower or something. And they're small and they're being supplied by one brand circuit. Or maybe it's a piece of equipment that has multiple loads in it and it's still just one brand circuit supplying it. So this is where this would kick in. So, for example, on an exam, if it's not over one horsepower, what it says in A, it's 430.53A, it'll say, several motors not exceeding one horsepower in rating shall be permitted on a nominal 120 volt branch circuit protected, okay, listen, protected at not over 20 amperes, or a branch circuit of 1,000 volts nominal or less protected at not over 15 amperes. So two different conditions here. If it's a 120 volt application on your exam, then it is not to be protected over 20 amperes. Okay. If it doesn't state the voltage on it, but it doesn't exceed a thousand, then it is not protected at, it's protected at not less than 15 amperes. And it also says in all cases, if all of the following conditions apply, and there's three conditions here. And this is typically what we would see on an exam. Number one, it says the full load current of each motor does not exceed six amperes. Okay. Um, and then it says the rating of the branch circuit, short circuit, uh, the, uh, the rating of the branch circuit, short circuit, and ground fault protected device marked on other than the controller is not exceeded. And an individual overload protection conforms to 430.32. So it's assuming that you've done your overload protection for this motor. Uh, whether it's inter integral or it's a separate overload or whatnot, it's assuming that you meet 430.32 that we talked about, and there's different options there. Uh, it's assuming that, the again, the branch circuit, short circuit, ground fault protection uh, is not exceeded, so you don't exceed the value of that uh, branch circuit, short circuit, ground fault protection, again, which you're actually doing based on uh, 430.52, and chances are you're not going to exceed that, so that one really becomes moot. Uh, and then, of course, the full load current for each motor does not exceed 6 amperes. And if that's the case, then this is where you're allowed to put multiple motors and meet these caveats. Uh, and remembering, you're, it's very load dependent. So if it's a 120-volt circuit, brand circuit, it's got to be protected at not over 20 amps. So, again, the number of loads you put on it, again, each motor doesn't exceed 6 amperes, but you're only going to put so many motors on that circuit anyway, obviously. Probably no more than two. All right, so... This is, the, this is kind of one of the ones that you'd see on an exam if you're doing a branch circuit and you're going to supply multiple motors, okay? That's one of the things to look at. One of the, the aspects that will serve you pretty well uh, when preparing for an exam is understanding Article 220 and its flow. Uh, our Fast Tracks program does a really good job of breaking that down for you so that you kind of understand step-by-step-by-step by step by step how you move through that. Um, but a couple of things to remember in 220.5, we're talking about calculations. Uh, you want to remember fractions. So calculate calculations shall be permitted to be rounded to the nearest whole number with decimal fractions smaller than 0.5 dropped. 
Okay, so point four and less, if you're using a calculation within Article 220, then you can you can drop it as far as the calculation goes. Just remember something. In the scheme of overall life, ampacity is ampacity. So if you have a circuit and you're doing a calculation for the number of circuits that's necessary, and we'll do that example in a minute, you can't have a 0.7 of a circuit. So if it's 0.7, uh, even if it's a 0.3, and it says that you need 1.3 circuits, and we'll look at an example in a minute, um, you can't drop the 0.3 of a circuit. It's necessary. It's, it, so you're going to have to go up to two circuits, okay? So just remember calculations when we're dealing with ampacities can be different than calculations that we might be doing in order to, to determine how many circuits we need. If we need 1.3 circuits or 1.4 circuits, then we need two circuits, okay? You can't have 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.7 of a circuit, okay? So just remember we're talking about calculations and we're talking about ampere values, not physical values, okay? Like, uh, again, if you need 1.7 of a, of a brand circuit to do what you need to do, then you need two circuits, okay? It has nothing to do with amps, all right? Okay. Um, a lot of times, also in an exam, if you're in the 2017 National Electrical Code, remember now, um, when you're dealing with a dwelling, you're going to be 220.12, and it's going to tell you 3VA per square foot. Uh, because it's going to send you to table 220.12, which has dwellings in it. If you're in the 2020 code, and many of you that are taking, that are going to be migrating to the 2020 code, uh, and you're taking that exam, uh, the dwelling aspect of it has been taken out of 220.12 and been relocated in 220.14J. So it's now going to have all of those values, and it's it's been more concisely placed in one specific item uh, in, or subdivision J, whereas before everything was kind of up into 220.12. Now, for an exam, most of the time they stick towards, say, dwellings type questions. Just remember 3VA per square foot is what you're dealing with. And that's the lighting and receptacle outlet applications. Uh, now, we're not talking specialty applications for the minimum of two small appliance brand circuits or the laundry that's covered in 210.11. But in, in, in what your VA is going to be from it, uh, just remember for a Dwelling, for example, when you're doing these calculations for the lighting and receptacle loads uh, that you're going to get starting out, the 3VA per square foot value, uh, that it already incorporates in there general use receptacles rated 20 amperes rated or less, including receptacles connected to the circuits in, in 210.11C3, like bathrooms, as well as 210.11C4, which is garages. You don't have to add anything different to that. That's all part of the 3VA. The only time that you have to add additional in it for those required circuits uh, is, for example, laundry. It's 1,500 VA for the laundry, provided you have a laundry. Uh, and then you've got the, um, uh, for example, in a multifamily, you might not have a laundry. You might have a facility on site, so you wouldn't have that laundry value for your calculation of the 1,500 VA for the laundry because you don't have one. Um, but most parts for dwellings, you're going to have a laundry uh, if you have a garage, you now have to calculate in the value of 1500 VA for the garage circuit. Um, if you have a garage, only if you have one. You have your uh, general lighting uh, and general purpose receptacle application. Again, that's 3 VA per square foot. And of course, with all that, you then get to apply demand factors uh, under table 220.42. And that is for dwelling unit, for example, the first 3000 at 100%. Uh, the value from 301 up to 120, or we many times say the next 117,000, uh, 
117,000 values of VA uh, at 35%, and the remainder over that at 25%. Very few dwelling applications are going to get into the 25%. Usually it's going to be the first 3,000 at 100, and then the remainder over that at 35%. Uh, and again, you don't have to start worrying about the 25% unless you get the remainder over anything that's over 120,000. VA. I don't know of any dwellings. I've done some really large dwellings that I don't even remember them coming the need for the 25%, but it's there. Uh, and so remember in a value, 100%, 35%, 25%, convert that to a decimal. If you're doing some calculations, uh, two spaces to the left. So 25% is 0.25, 35% is 0.35. Uh, you know, and so 100% is 1.00, but we all know 100% is 100% of something. So anyway, those are kind of some of the aspects to think about for, for that. Now, if I'm preparing for an exam, some of the low-hanging fruit that I would spend my time on uh, in dwelling calculations is understanding each one of the little pieces, okay? Understanding that if you have 220.52A is the small appliance circuit. That's where you get your 1500 VA Okay, for your small appliance brand circuit, and you have to have a minimum of two. So you're going to have at least 1,500 times two. If you have a real-world situation and you have more than two, even an exam, if exam gives you four small appliance brand circuits, don't forget and just do 1,500 for the minimum of two. You've got four of them, so you have to count for all four of them. So don't forget that on an exam, and it's 1,500 VA a piece. You just have to have a minimum of two, but you could have more. Uh, you have a laundry then you're going to use it at 1500 VA for the laundry. Again, dryers, interesting enough, dryers are not required. If it's on the calculation, if it's in the example, then you use the dryer and at 220.54, you follow that. Um, but if it doesn't have a dryer, don't guess one, don't assume one unless the question states it because believe it or not, cooking and drying are not a requirement for, for the do your dwelling calculation. Now, if they're there, you have to account for them, okay? But they're not, there's nothing that mandates it, okay? Now, uh, and everything else is mandated. The VA per square foot, the, the small appliance, the laundry, the, if you have a garage, the garage, all those things are, are mandated, but there's many things that, that are not mandated, okay? Now, the other thing that I want you to make sure that you really fully comprehend when you're dealing with dwelling units is when you're dealing with appliances. So when you're doing appliances, and again, we're, we're in part three, so we're talking standard calculation aspects here. Um, I have an allowance here in 220.53 for appliances. So in my appliances, and we want to make sure that you know that electric cooking equipment, uh, clothes dryer, space heating, and air conditioning are not considered appliances like the same context as a washing machine, a dishwasher or the same context as a, a disposal, okay? Those are appliances, but there's four of them here that don't get considered into this, what we call a, a D rating or demand factor application, okay, when you're doing your calculation. And again, we're talking standard. Optional method, you're just taking nameplates. But here, for appliances in the standard method, it says it shall be permitted to apply a demand factor of 75% to the nameplate rating load of four or more appliances that are rated one quarter horsepower or greater, or 500 watts or greater, and are fastened in place, and that are served by the same feeder or service in a one family, two family, or multifamily. Okay, 
feeder or service. So I want to do, if I'm doing an individual unit, then it's obviously being fed by the same feeder. If I'm doing an individual one and two family dwelling or one family dwelling uh, or each side of a two family dwelling, I'm allowed to supply these demand factors. And again, when I have four or more and the, the values are a fourth horsepower or greater for, I guess it's motor loads or 500 watts or greater for any other load, then I can apply a demand factor as long as I get to four or more. And that is based on the nameplate load value of that appliance, okay? So I take those values. Uh, they're usually going to be supplied to you on an exam. They'll give them to you uh, so that you have them. And I'm going to apply those. And so I'm doing my calculation. That is just simply one step in the process, okay? And I'm going to apply 75% demand factor to that. And that's what's going to be my ultimate VA. Uh, a couple of things that I remind people about this is during the same time that you're doing a standard calculation, you should be simultaneously doing a neutral calculation because even if you have an optional, and that's a question that they ask you, you still have to do the standard method in order to come up with what the neutral current would be because you can't use an optional method to do the neutral current. So I teach people all the time, whether or not in the real world, you're probably always going to use the optional method. Standard method hardly makes sense in the loads and everything because there's such a difference between the optional and standard method, but it's there. Uh, it's what we say the worst case scenario. And you just need to know how to do them both because we're going to base a neutral based on a standard calc. So if, you, if you're really uh, proficient in the optional method and you're not really proficient in the, new, uh, in the uh, standard method, you're going to have some problems because we need to know how to size the neutral and we can't use the optional to size the neutral. Okay, Just keep that in mind when you're preparing for an exam. So you're working these things out simultaneously. Okay, but that's your allowance for the appliances. And of course, in dryers, if you do have an electric clothes dryer and you're in a standard method, then what you're doing is, is the electric clothes dryer shall be either 5,000 watts or some uh, synonymous with VA because we like to work everything in VA. So it tells you here that watts in this case is the same as VA. Um, so I'd say 5,000 VA or 5,000 watts, or you take the nameplate rating, whichever ultimately is larger. Okay, so on an exam, if they don't tell you, they just tell you it's a clothes dryer, then you take the 5,000 VA. Uh, if they actually tell you it's a 6,000 VA or 6,000 watt clothes dryer, then you take the value at the 6,000 watts or the 6,000 VA. Okay, uh, different than what we do with an optional method, which you would literally take the nameplate value because you're going to get such a big diversity bump uh, anyway. When you start doing that, the first 10,000 at 100 and then the remainder at 40, you're going to get some benefits anyway. So you're just going to take the nameplate. So optional method is so much easier. Uh, if you haven't watched my live streams, I do an example of a single family and an example of a multifamily. And I do an example of optional and standard methods for both. Watch those because you could, any given time on an exam, it could ask you any specific piece. Okay, not the whole thing. There's not enough time, but it could ask you any specific piece and you want to be able to answer that piece. So make sure you take the time, make a little note to yourself that you're going to go and watch my video on that. Okay. All right. So the next thing that people get into is that they freak out on. Uh, oh, and I should ask you when you're doing the calculation, if you're in a situation where you're in, you're in a multifamily, for example, and you're doing multiple dryers, closed dryers, then you're going to come in contact with table 220.54. If you come in contact with 220.54, the table, for example, if you have 20 
three clothes dryers totally in your calculation. Then the demand factor is you start at the 47%. I'm just kind of showing you how this table works if you have your code book handy. It starts at 47% minus 1% for each dryer exceeding 11. So I've got 23. And so I'm going to take 20. If I had 23, I might take 23 minus 11. I have 12. So that's 12%. Okay. So I would take 47% minus one for each dryer exceeding 11. And that was 12 of them. So it's 12%. So I would take 47 and I would minus 12. 47 minus 12. And that equals 35. So that is my demand factor in percentage, 35. Uh, as you see how this table goes, the more that you have, you the more demand that you have and more um, the demand diversity really does bring down the load involved with it because of balancing out and how things work. So you get some advantages uh, when you're doing it inside of a uh, of an application where you might be multifamily building and you're doing the overall service and you can apply this demand, okay? Other thing that I'm going to tell you quickly is on an exam, make sure that you understand if you look at the, the last part of 220.54 and it's going to be the same in 220.55 for ranges, there's an important statement and it's usually always low-hanging fruit on an exam. And that is where it says where two or more single-phase dryers are supplied by a three-phase four-wire feeder or service, the total load shall be calculated on the basis of twice the maximum number connected between any two phases, kilovolt ampere or kilovolt amperes KVA shall be considered equivalent to kilowatts. We saw that earlier when you're doing the calculations. So again, it's important to know how many. So if I have 15, uh, let's say I have 15 ranges, right? Or dryers, clothes dryers, whatever I want. And I have the 15 of those. And I'm going to say, okay, so the first thing I have to do is I have 15 of them. I'm going to divide those by three. And that tells me that I have a maximum potential of five on any. Okay, so that's my first step. Then I take that times two. Okay, so that tells me that I've got 10. So 10 is my maximum, 10 is my value that I use. Okay, so uh, I take that value and then I go to the table 220.54 and work it out like I would normally. Okay, so just remember in how you make your calculations that, and I have a video that literally explains this entire process. So make sure that you go watch my video and whether it's ranges or whether it's uh, dryers, the same concept applies. And I have a video that addresses how to do this application when you have the uh, maximum number between any two phases. Okay. And you got to, and you have to work that out. All right. So, and it basically tells you that it says, I mean, again, it says, uh, the total number shall be calculated on the basis of twice the maximum number connected between any two phases. So we did that. We took the 15 uh, and divided it by three. Uh, and then I took that and multiplied that by two. And so the maximum number is 10 on any uh, two phases. That was my first point. And then I worked my equation out from there. Okay. But again, go watch that video in more detail. I don't want to get into that in too much detail for this kind of just an overview exam prep. But you need to understand that because that is low-hanging fruit on an exam. Okay. Now with dryers, that's pretty cut forward. When it comes to ranges, same concept is going to apply if you're going to have two or more single-phase ranges supplied by a three-phase four-wire service or feeder. Um, then you're going to have to do this calculation that way again. Keeping, keeping that in mind. 
But when you're looking at the table, uh, one of the important things that I always tell people about the table is, is understand that last line in the heading. Okay, if you're looking at table 220.55 for ranges, it says in the, in the last portion of it, it says um, column C to be used in all cases except as otherwise permitted in note three. So one of the biggest tips that I can give you is one, you need to know what these notes mean. And I have a video that talks about ranges and you need to go watch our video. So I won't rehash it here because I've already got a video. Go watch it because you need to understand how these notes apply. But more importantly, you're going to understand that you always have to compare column C to column A or B if note three is applicable. And note three, for example, is a powerful note because what it does is it says, look, if I've got any, any range, cooking appliance, cooktop, whatever it is, if it is over one and three quarter KW through eight and three quarter, okay, which is what column A and column B are kind of revolving around, it says, in lieu of the methods provided in column C, which is basically just simply take the number of appliances and apply the demand factor here. And this value that you see here is literally a KW value, which you see in this column for C, whereas A and B are percentages. Don't get that confused, okay? And when I do that, it says that uh, it's, it shall be permissible to add the nameplate ratings of all household cooking appliances rated not uh, rated more than one and three quarter, but not more than eight and three quarter, and multiply the sum by the demand factor specified in column A or column B for a given number of appliances. Now, it says where the rating of cooking appliances fall under both column A and column B, it says the demand factors of each column shall be applied for the appliances for that column, and then the results added together. So remember, if I have a cooktop and an oven, and one falls under A, and one falls under B, collectively they could fall under C, because I could always choose C, okay? And that's two separate appliances, so I go to two appliances and I go over, and that'd be 11 kW, is based on what it says in column C, or I could take the, rain, uh, the cooktop, and apply it to whatever column that is applied, and let's say it's column A, and let's say it's um, 3KW, then I can, that's one appliance, and I apply 80%. So that value you see in column A, 80, is a percentage. So again, we're going to take that uh, a decimal point and move it two places to the left after the zero to the left, and that's going to be 0.80 because we want to break it down into a decimal value. Uh, or if your calculator does it, otherwise it's fine. But that would be the value that we would have there in that percentage. And then, of course, if the range fell under column B, we do the same thing. So that's 80% there, okay? And we compare the two compared to the 11. And when you do that, again, you take whatever comes out as the largest value, okay? And then you have to take that, all right? So you have to really compare the two, okay, and, and, and add the values up and whichever comes to the largest value that you, you, you would take that value because that's actually your load. So if I was working that out, it'd be if I had 3,000 uh, VA times 0 0.80 and that was 2,400. And then the other one was, I don't know, let's say it's a 6 kW uh, range. So it'd be 6,000 times 0 0.80 and that is 4,800. Right? Okay. So I add those two together, and that's going to give me 7,200. Okay? All right. So I've got the 7,200. All right? And so I think I actually 
if I remember right, I can't remember what I just told you, but you t- you can, you're in, you can take either or. So you don't actually take the greater the value. You take whatever provides you the, the answer that's the, the better value for you. So in our case, 7,200 is better than the 11,000 in column C. So I actually get to use the 7,200. I don't know what I said earlier. I don't take the greater. I'm sorry. You actually take which one. You, you, this is the only time that I'm permitted to use another value other than what's in column C because of note three. Uh, any other time, I'm going to compare C to A and B and work from there, okay? All right, so I mean, to clarify here, you could choose column C and just run with it, but it's gonna be larger demand value in KW than necessary because note three allows me to be able to use A and B, and if they treat them separately, I can add them together. And if that value is less than the value 11,000, our case it was 7,200 versus the two appliances for column C was 11,000, I'm obviously going to use the 11, uh, 7,200 rather than the 11. Okay, so that's the benefit of note three utilizing column A in column B if they fall within column A and column B. It might all fall within column B. It might be a, a range that's, uh, let's use another example, make it easier to understand. If I have one range, right, and one range under column C, it doesn't matter as long as it's not over 12 kW. It could be a 10 kW range. My, my actual maximum demand in kW would be 8 kW, as it says right there in column C for one appliance. You get me? But if it's an 8 kW range, it also falls underneath column B, which is eight and three quarter through uh, th- three in, what is that? I can't see it. One half KW through eight and three quarter. All right, so my range actually follows under column B as well. And that's what notes three is all about. So it would be eight KW if I followed C, but I'm allowed to f- use B because it falls under B in lieu of C. And so in that case, you take the nameplate. And let's just use an example here. So it was a, a 10 kW. If it was 10 kW, it wouldn't fall under column B. That would be the nameplate. You see what I'm saying? You're going to be in C. But let's say the nameplate is 8 kW, and that's what's on the actual nameplate. And so column C, as long as it doesn't exceed 12 kW, it, it's 8 kW for our calculation purposes, 8,000 watts. But this case, it also follows under B. So I'm going to take the 8,000, which is a nameplate, times 0.80, and that is 6,400. So on my exam, if it falls under two columns, then the answer is going to be 6,400 VA because I can use column B, and that results in a lower value, okay? I don't have to take the higher value. This is why Note 3 allows me to utilize demand factors, uh, column A, column B. All right. Uh, now, in real world, could I do column C and still be okay? Absolutely. I mean, I'd still be fine. Um, not going to hurt anything. It's going to be a little larger than necessary. For example, it's just instead of being 6,400, it would be 8,000 uh, VA. Uh, so a little bit of a difference in VA there. But the code permits me to do that. Again, that's what it says in the charging statement. It says column C is used in all cases except as otherwise permitted in note three. And note three tells me in lieu of the method provided in column C, it shall be permitted to add the nameplates and and again, use column A or column B. So that's how it's permitted, okay? It's not a requirement, 
You're permitted to do that. Okay. So this is kind of some little things to think about when you're doing that. Um, optional methods. Let's talk a little bit about optional methods. Oh, wait a minute. Heat versus air conditioning. That's an example where you have what's called, you have to look at it and say, is it non-coincidental loads? Whereas I'm taking the heat or I'm taking the air conditioning, whichever one is larger, I'm going to take the larger because that's the worst case scenario in that, in that scenario. Okay. So that's a little different than what we just did in ranges. Now we're looking at, well, we're, we're taking the larger of the two and that's kind of what we're, we're looking at. And so keeping that in mind, that's how we, we apply that. And we know this is the truth because it talks about non-coincidental loads in 220.60. It says, well, it's unlikely that two or more non-coincidental loads, AC versus heat, will be used simultaneously. It shall be permitted to use only the largest load that will be used at one time for calculating the total load of the feeder or service. So that's different where we were the range. We got permission uh, to use um, note three which resulted in a lower VA than what we would have done in column C. Here, for non-coincident loads, AC versus heat, we take the larger, whichever equates to the larger. Now, here's a couple tips on an exam. If you have an air handler unit in your equation and it has a motor involved in it, the chances are, 100% chance, that the blower motor is going to work whether it's cooling or heating. So you want to always add that value into your equations, okay? Because it's going to run whether it's heat, and that's not non-coincidental. Now, the heating part versus the cooling part will, chances are, be non-coincidental. And so if that's the case, I get to dismiss the, the larger of the two. Now, interesting enough, for the 2020 code, there was a change. And again, if you're taking a 2020 code exam, where they have a little bit of a, of a, of a conflict in here uh, when it comes to how to treat the motor. Because if your heat was larger than your AC, but your AC had the largest motor then you would still have to take the additional 25% for that motor. Uh, and if you did not count that motor because it was the lesser of the two in the comparison, then you would take that motor at 125% of the motor load and you add that to the calculation, okay? So basically saying if I took the heat over the AC, but the AC's motor... Uh, or compressor ended up being the largest motor, then I still take that value, that motor, and, and work it into the equation. We don't want to discount it. So what their goal here is, and I think there'll be some changes in 2023 on this, their goal was to not forget that that motor happened to be the largest motor, and we need to account for that largest motor, okay? So we don't just discard it or throw it away. It's still, it's still a motor, okay? So in the scheme of the largest motor scenarios. So what it says in the 2020, again, for you in the 2017, it's, 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 it's a moot point, but it says where a motor is part of a non-coincidental load and is not the largest load, again, heat versus AC, the AC was the largest motor in the, in the house, uh, but it was less than the heat, which is very common. It's saying 125% of the motor load shall be used in the calculation uh, if, if it is the largest motor. So AC versus heat, if the AC's largest motor involved in it, then I take that at 125% and I add it to my calculations. Small amount, but it is going to be calculated into it. Uh, I don't know that that's necessary uh, in this equation, but um, it's what the code says, and that's what it says in the 2020 code right now. In the 20, 
17 code, it does not say that. So just take the larger versus heat versus AC. And just remember, in an exam, if they have an air handler, that it's probably going to, it's the motor's going to go whether or not it's AC or heat. So make sure you add that when you're comparing the two. AC, add all the motors that are relevant. And heat, add the heat, resistance heat, if that's what it is. And then add all of the uh, motors, again, air handler motor that would be relevant because if it works, no, regardless of whether heat or AC is going, you still have something that's got to blow, the motor's got to blow that air around, then you're going to make sure that you add that into your equation. So I just want to make sure that you, you think about that when you're preparing for your, for your exam, okay? Now, when dealing with the optional method, much easier, and I have, a, again, I have an extensive video that talks about this, but when dealing with the, with the optional method, it's pretty simple. The first 10 kVA, uh, that you're dealing with is at 100%, and the remainder is at 40%, you simply follow the list, okay? You just simply go right down the list. Uh, and again, this applies to dwelling units having a total connected load served by a single 120-volt, 240-volt, or a 208Y 120-volt set of three-wire single uh, service or feeder conductors with an ampacity of 100 amperes or greater, okay, so that's a caveat, 100 amperes or greater, okay, it says it shall be permitted to calculate the feeder or service loads in accordance with this section, okay, and of course we're talking about, uh, when we're dealing with section is 220.82, uh, and we're in obviously in part four, which is the optional feeder and service load calculation, so we get the permission to do this, and it tells us that we can use this in lieu of part three of this article, which was the standard method. So it's much easier to do the optional. You just have to, to remember that you can't do neutral sizing based on the optional method, okay? All right. It says the calculated load shall be the result of adding the loads from 220.82B, which is the general loads, and we'll talk about that real quick, and then C, which is going to be your heating and air conditioning loads, okay? So you're adding them together, all right? And it goes on to say the feeder and service conductors uh, whose calculated load is determined by this optional method shall be permitted to have the neutral load determined by 220.61. Now, 220.61 gives us the, uh, the allowance for the basic calculation. Again, it's gonna, you're going to need to use the standard method for that, sizing it. Uh, but also, this is where you have also some of the applications where the uh, neutral is uh, 70% for like the dryers. Uh, and for the ranges, applications, where you're sizing the neutral, it's the permitted reduction, and you have to meet those rules. So it just reminds you of these rules. Just remember, you're still going to have to use the standard method to calculate your, your neutral conductors, okay? So it's just a long way of reminding us that, because if you notice, 220.61 is actually part of part three. It's not part of part four, okay? So because it's part of part three, that's a standard calculation method in part three. So just keep that in mind. You still have your three VA per square foot. It's going to remind you of your 1500 VA for each small appliance brand circuit. Again, 210.11C1 is going to remind you that it needs to be at least two. Um, you're going to have all of the nameplate ratings of all your appliances that are fastened in place. Your nameplate rating of your ranges, wall-mounted ovens, counter-mounted cooking, just adding everything up. Take the nameplate values on an exam. They've got to give you these values. There's no assumption here, okay? Uh, closed dryers, if it's added, okay? Um, that uh, And it's, then it says uh, water heaters. All these things, you need those values, okay? Um, let's see here. 
Uh, and then, of course, number four would be the nameplate ratings in KVA or KVA rating of all permanently connected motors not included in item three. So you could have other motors that are in the application that you have to take into consideration. You don't want to just discount other motors. There might be other motors that are not falling under various appliances and things like that that are covered in item three that we just talked about. So if there's any other motor, uh, one example of the motors that might be covered in this might be attic motors for attic fans, things like that would be incorporated into this application. All right. Now, C deals with the heating versus air conditioning load again, and it just simply has a six-item format that you have to determine, okay, what is your system? For example, the first one says, okay, when you're dealing with air conditioning, I want to take the value of the air conditioning at 100% of the nameplate rating of the air conditioning, okay? And again, you're taking the largest of any of these six selections, so if the air conditioning is 100% is larger than 8, then you're going to go with the air conditioning. The next one says 100% of the nameplate rating of a heat pump where the heat pump is used without any supplemental electric heat. So purely taking the value of the heat pump, okay? An exam, they have to give you this information, okay? You have to know these values. So that, and you simply go through the list. If it is a heat pump that also has supplemental heat, then you take 100% of the nameplate rating of the heat pump compressor, and you take 65% of the supplemental heat. And if that ultimately is the largest, then you take that as well. Okay. Now, one thing to keep in mind in those scenarios, if that heat pump compressor does not operate at the same time as supplemental heat, in other words, it has a disconnection or non-coincidental component, then it does not need to be added to the supplemental heat. In other words, I can leave the compressor off because the heat tends to be larger. I can take the heat and do it at 65% and compare that. And if that's my largest, then I use it, okay? Because the heat's typically going to be greater than the heat pump compressor, okay? Um, if they're not locked out, then I have to take both into consideration and, and, and that's going to be my largest value, okay? Very rarely do they come on together, so... So there's a bunch of different, um, number four, 65% of the nameplate rating of uh, electric space heating if less than four separate controlled units. So if I have four separate, uh, less than four, maybe three heat strip, um, uh, what do we call those, um, baseboard heater type of things, then I take that at 65% of the nameplate ratings uh, for each one of those and add it up. And that's going to be, if that's my largest, then that's what I'd use. And that's what I include in my optional calculation. Okay. Now, there's no other demand factor loads that you go to, no other tables like you get for the standard method because you're already getting heavily discounted with the optional here. It's 10,000 of the first, right? And then you get for the for the first part, the general application, it's the first 10,000 at 100 and the remainder at 40, and then you take the values of the heating and air conditioning, whichever the largest, and you add it to that. So, you're getting a big diversity breakdown when it comes to the general loads, and then you just purely take your heating and air conditioning loads and whichever the largest, you apply that, okay? And that is a straightforward calculation when we're doing uh, dwelling units, individual units. Uh, uh, and then when we get to uh, optional method for more than that, whereas we get into 220.84, then we're getting into multifamily dwellings, okay? Where we're getting in three or more dwelling units. Now, there is a provision I like to make people aware of. If I have a two-unit dwelling, then you would look at 220.85, which is going to allow you to compare a part three calculation with the values that are 220.84. And the lesser of the two loads are permitted to use. So you can compare, compare the two and what you would get in your value. All right.
So one of those things to, to, to compare. So what it says here, it says we're two, um, in 220.85, just for your edification, it says where two dwelling units are supplied by a single feeder or calculate, uh, and the calculated load under part three of this article exceeds that for three identical units calculated under 220.84, then the lesser of the two loads shall be permitted. So what you do is you do the two, but you act like you're doing three. If the three value based on the 45% demand factor of table 220.84 is actually less than what you did if you did the standard method for two units, then you can use the values under table 220.84 instead of taking the two that you did under part three for the standard method calculation. So that's how you can compare. And that's a little advantage when you're doing a two dwelling unit. You can do two dwelling unit and then you can act like they're all three identical uh, and then do the calculation as if it was a three unit multifamily building and compare. And in most cases, I'm going to tell you that it's going to be less under uh, doing an equivalent identical unit comparison under 220.84. And I'm able to take the lesser of the two calculations, okay? Only comes into play when you get a, a two-dwelling unit application, all right? Okay, so that's kind of throwing some stuff out there for an exam. Um, one other thing to talk about in exams, I guess, is the commercial side of it is when you're calculating receptacles, uh, remember that receptacles in a commercial environment are 180 VA per strap, okay? And that doesn't matter if it's a duplex, okay? It's got two receptacles on a duplex, whereas a simplex only has one. So a simplex is 180 VA because it's based on the strap. If I have a duplex receptacle, there's two receptacles on it, but it's still 180 VA because it's only one strap, okay? Just keep that in mind. Um, and when you're doing the exam, and again, remember that does not apply to residential, residential applications. Now, earlier I said, I was going to show you an example of how to calculate the general lighting load and the number of circuits you need. And I did not do that. So I want to want to do that now. So let's say I have a 12,000, uh, square foot, uh, dwelling. That's a large dwelling, but let's just say it is. And my question is how many 15 amp branch circuits do I need for general lighting? So I have 12,000 square foot. Now we know that's three VA per square foot because that's what we looked at in 220.12 uh, as we know that value. So in, in our case, we do 12,000 times three VA. So it's 12,000 times three VA and that is 36,000, right? So I have 36,000 VA and that's my general lighting and general receptacle applications when I'm starting this little process. And only question on the exam wanted to know how many branch circuits do I need to what I have to have to, to, to handle this application. All right, so the other thing we know is 15 amperes, all right, and it's a 120 volt circuit. So we go 15 times 120, and that is 1800 VA. So I can get 1800 VA out of a 15 amp circuit. Now, if I've got 36,000 VA, because it's three VA per square foot, and it was a 12,000 square foot uh, dwelling, for example, it's a large dwelling, by the way. And so, I'm just seeing how many 15 amps would I need. Now, this has nothing to do with my small appliance. This is general lighting. There's nothing in the code that says the lighting in a dwelling unit has to be 20 amperes. I get that question a lot. Uh, small appliance brand circuits are 20 amp, laundry 20 amp, um, garage 20 amp, bathroom 20 amp. At the end of the day, 
The lighting can be based on whatever you calculate the load at. So in an exam question, they're simply trying to come up with the number of circuits based on what they ask you. And that is, they tell you that how many 15 amp breakers can I handle the general lighting and general receptacle load. That's general receptacle, not specialized receptacle applications and branch circuits like in 210.11 for small appliance, laundry, bathroom. Again, your general wall spacing type of general receptacle applications. Don't overthink the question because it's really just wanting to know the general lighting and how much I can put on a 15 amp breaker. So it was 12,000 times three VA per square foot. 36,000 VA. We also took the 15 amps times the 120 volts to find out what our VA was for that individual 15 amp circuit. And that was 1800. So then it becomes a matter of just taking 36,000 and divided it by 1800. And that breaks it down to 20. So I need at least 20 15 amp brand circuits. If that's the, what the question asked me to be able to supply all of the receptacles. And of course your job as an electrician is to balance that out Although there's nothing in the code that says that I can't put 30 receptacles on a brand circuit, except for common sense. You're going to lay things. The code does ask you to keep things very balanced and even. So that's where people come up with the rule of thumb. They say, I'm going to put no more than, than 12 receptacles on a circuit with, with three lights, or I'm not going to put more than uh, eight receptacles with four luminaires or however you come up with it. Again, just remember that luminaires are literally a fixed load. Whereas receptacles are not. We don't know what they're going to plug into it. So the good news is the diversity is how many times you've been in your bedroom or uh, somewhere and you rarely have anything plugged into a receptacle. Okay. So there's enough diversity in there. It's really not about the numbers. It's about the load. But in this question on an exam, they were literally just asking you how many 15 amps breakers would I need to, uh, a brand circuits did I need to supply this, this VA value. And that's, that's basically what you do to determine the number. It's a pretty simple concept. Uh, just remember, you always can find the actual VA of a circuit by doing the ampacity of that circuit times whatever the voltage is. And that will give you what the VA capacity is for that circuit. And then you can apply that to a total VA value depending on the square footage. Okay, just kind of little things to remember. Uh, when it comes to commercial, though, slightly different because that is, a, again, 180 VA. So again, you know what your circuit is. And if I was doing that in the exam and it was asking me the number of receptacles I could have on a circuit, well, we know that, that a 15 amp or 20 amp circuit, let's say do 20 times 120 and that is 2,400. Okay. So I have 2,400 and in a calculation, if I did 2,400 VA and I want to divide that by 180, then that tells me that I can have 13.3 uh, receptacles. Okay, so I can have a 0.3, so 13, I can have 13 receptacles on a 20 amp circuit uh, that would be sufficient, okay, to be able to handle that. that. That's how many, at 180 VA per strap. So I think that's where people came up with the rule of thumb, 13 or 14 uh, or 12 for use in residential. It's all based on the values that we use for commercial. And that would be, uh, again, 180 VA per strap. Now, if I have uh, one of those quads that has the four on it, that the four receptacles on it, so if you have that, then it's just 90 VA a piece times four, uh, and that is 360, okay? So the code gives you all those parameters uh, when you're dealing with it, but usually per strap, it'd be 180. So if I have a, a double gang box and I have two receptacles in there, then it's 180 VA per strap, okay? Uh, in that case, it equates to 360 VA total for that box. 
Um, but if I had a quad there, that's essentially the same as two single pole, I mean, same as two duplexes. But since they're all on the same configuration on the same faceplate, then what happens is that I'm able to do up 90 per a piece. And when you have four or more, then you do 90 a piece. Uh, and that's how you get it to 360 for four of them. Okay. All right. So that's kind of some extra things to think about. Uh, restaurants, a low hanging fruit on an exam would be restaurants optional method, uh, which is table 220.88. Uh, see this on exams all the time. They will give you the value of an all electric restaurant in KVA. And they're going to want you to tell them what the actual permitted load calculation is for this new restaurant using the optional method. And people routinely get this one wrong. And I know for a fact, this is on the Texas exam. So make sure you understand it. So let's say it was a 750 KVA is what they presented to us in our question. And they want to know what the actual calculated load is on that. It's an all electric range. You simply go to the left column and table 220.88. You go down and you see that 326 through 800 and ours was 750 falls right in that range. You move over to the right. Now reading this, is really important. You see where it says 50%? It doesn't mean 50% of the 750, okay? It means 50% of the amount that is over 325. So a lot of people make that mistake because they see the, the 50% right there. So to find out the VAT that's over 325, I'm going to take the 750 minus 325, and that gives me 425, okay? So I have 425. Now, I take that value at 50%. Okay, so I take that times 50% and that is 220, uh, 212.5 and then it says plus 172.5. So I do that plus 172.5. So it is going to be 385 KVA versus 750 KVA. That is what my calculated load is and it's really just that simple. Many people overdo this, and let's see what it would be if you did it wrong. If I did 750 KVA at 50%, so 750 uh, times 50%, and that was, uh, hold on, 750 times 50% is 375 plus 172.5, and that's 547. So you see there's a dramatic difference uh, for me to be able to do this calculation right. And I would say that many people get this wrong on an exam right out the bat. Okay. Okay. So just wanted to make sure that you know that question, because that is one that's going to be on, on exams. Definitely be on exams. Other than that, guys, just make sure that you understand how 310.15b16 and the ampacity table works. If they give you a question and it says THWN and it doesn't say THWN-2, understand that you're going to be in the 75-degree column. When you apply adjustment and corrections in 310.15b3a uh, B, uh, or B2a, you're going to be applying it from whatever the temperature rating is based on the conductor. So if it's THWN and it's a wet location, and it's still 75 degree, okay? Um, if it's a THWN in a, in a dry location, then you have the application where typically it's also THHN, and that is good for 90, and so you can use the 90 degree value, but you have to be careful. Now, if it's THWN with a dash two, then you know that it's from the 90, and it doesn't matter whether it's wet or a dry location. Don't fall for that. And the most common one that people get on exams is XHHW. You see the two H's, you think high heat, you think 90. 
because one H is 75, no H's is 60. And you're thinking, okay, it's 90 and it has a W, it's wet. But the problem is in a wet location, it's only good for 75. In a dry location, it's good for 90 because XHHW, cross-linked polyethylene, is very commonly used in a wet and dry application. But the problem is if it doesn't have a dash two on it, then it can't be used at 90 degrees in a wet location, only 75 in a wet location. And that's why they're both listed under the tables at 31015B16. Or if you're in the 2020 code, it's 31016 now again. So just keep those things in mind. Don't fall for that. If they give you an adjustment and correction question, it's very common for them to give it to you as a THWN and not as the dash two. And your mind immediately knows that you're thinking, wait a minute, 31015 says that I can use a higher value to adjust and correct. And if they give me a number of current carrying conductors that exceed three, or they give me an ambient temperature that is different than the values in that we're allowed to use in the code, which is based on the um, 30 degrees Celsius or 86 degrees Fahrenheit. And so we get some values that are different than that, and we start freaking out. Don't freak out. Just look at the question, look at the insulation type, and everything is key to the insulation type. So even when I go to do the correction for the temperatures, if the insulation is only rated for 75, then I want to make sure that my correction factor is only being pulled from the 75. If it's a 90 degree rated insulation and we're using it for adjustment and correction, then I want to make sure I'm pulling from the 90 degree column uh, when I'm over in 31015B2A. Of course, you're in the new code and 2020 code, then it's not. It's just going to be 31015B1. So a little bit easier to navigate in the newer 2020 edition. But just keep that in mind that, that the B in 310.15B is going to be dealing with correction factors. And the 31015C is going to be dealing in adjustment factors. That's for the 2020 code. You're in the 2017. Again, it's 31015B2A and B3A is how you're going to work those out. Okay. All right. So that's the questions you'll get. Some other questions you might get is being careful about is 110.14, and that is terminal limitations. Now, with X, HHW-2, and all those, um, you can sometimes ignore the values for when it gives you this guidance about being conductors that are 100 amperes or less or 14 through 1 uh, because it's not telling you the conductor type. Then you're immediately going to fall to the 60-degree column. But you will see that in the 110.14C1, you have provisions 1, 2, 3, and 4 that allow me to use a conductor with a higher temperature rating as long as the equipment is listed and the conductor is listed for that. That's why we usually, usually will utilize the 90 or the 75. Uh, one of the things to remember is if their question is about non-metallic sheath cable, we can use the 90 for adjustment and correction because the conductors inside of it are required to be rated 90, but we still can't exceed the values in the six degree column for ampacity. All we're doing is making sure that, that when we do adjustment and corrections, after we do that, do we still have a conductor that is equal to or greater than the values that are under the 60 degree column, okay? So comparing it is really what we're doing with that. So just be familiar with 110.14C and the provisions, but most of the time it becomes a moot point unless they don't tell you anything and they give you a size one gauge and they don't tell you anything about the insulation type, and they want to know the ampacity of it, don't get fooled for that one. Because if they give you that one, and they don't tell you the type of insulation, and all you know is the size, and that's it, then or the ampacity value, and that's it, then you're going to make sure that you, you, you focus on 
110.14C1, whereas if you don't know, then if it's 100 amperes or less, it's 60 degree opacity column. And if it's conductors that are marked 14 through one, you're in the 60 degree. If you don't get any insulation values presented to you, and if it is over 100 amperes and it's larger than one, and they don't tell you the insulation types, then you know you're in the 75, okay? So just remember those type of things. There's other caveats here, but exam could give you any one of those things. So hopefully you got something out of this. Uh, it was a little easier for you to understand some of the concepts here. Um, again, always remember we have a fast tracks program that will teach you everything you need to know about electrical preparation for exams. Uh, and we have tons of videos and tons of things over on our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash master the NEC. Check out our websites at masterthenec.com. Uh, and hopefully you'll get some information that will help you pass the exam. I'm here to help you any way I can. Thanks until next time. God bless. You've been listening to Electrician Live with your host, Paul 